Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be covering pages 212 to 228 of the Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. The title of this section is called Under the Color of Law. And uh, we're going to get into the reading portion of it first. Uh, If you're interested in the reading without commentary, this is the section for you. For those of you who are not interested in this part, this part is about uh, 34 minutes long. So if you go to 36 minutes into the podcast and then rewind a little bit, that's where we'll be starting the reading and commentary portion of the program. All right, well, let's get into it. This is Under the Color of Law, pages 212 to 228 of the Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. Under the Color of Law, pages 212 to 228 of Four Crafts. Government politicians and kingcrafters succeeded in driving the Mormons out of the United States and then enjoyed taking over their lands and buildings. With the sweet taste of success, they decided to once again benefit from the assets of the hard-working saints in the Salt Lake Valley, so they tried to use their military powers to rob them again. Since this attempt was unsuccessful, they approached it from another angle and dash they would resort to lawyers. By acting under the color of law, the King Crouchers could continue their legal piracy until both church and personal property would be confiscated. After all, politicians and lawyers are close bedfellows. In 1852, Brigham Young announced publicly that plural marriage was a tenet of the Mormon faith. In 1856, the Republican Party included polygamy along with slavery as one of the twin relics of barbarism. By February 15, 1860, the Republican Senator from Vermont introduced a bill to punish and prevent the practice of polygamy in the territories. This was definitely a law against the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Congress had no power to act against the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. But that didn't matter. Since this bill was directed only at the Mormons in the territories, it was bound to be approved. On April 5, 1860, the House of Representatives passed the anti-polygamy bill by vote of 149 to 60. One year later the Civil War began. In April of 1862, Senator Murray laddered a part about the accumulation of property and wealth of the community in the hands of what may be called theocratic institutions, inconsistent with our form of government. This would limit the Mormon church holdings to $50,000 or else it would have to be forfeited to the United States government. On July 2, 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the anti-polygamy bill. Lincoln, like Stephen A. Douglas, had met the prophet Joseph Smith, and had even sat in a session in which he heard the Nova Charter read. 
He once exclaimed that he would treat the Mormons like a large tree in his field and ash too hard to burn and too big to remove, so he would leave it alone and just plow around it. But Honest Abe soon changed his view. Strange as it may seem, many of the states were seceding from the Union at the time when the Mormons were trying to join it. Some of the states were discarding the Constitution while the Mormons were defending it. The Union was trying to keep the rebels as states, but was refusing the admission of Utah as a state. Lincoln's destiny to be President of the United States came about because he took the place of the man who turned against the Mormons. However, shortly after taking the oath to support the Constitution, he, too, turned against the saints and was later tipped from the glory, honor and power of his office. By the use of his political power, Lincoln promulgated a hatred against the Mormons together with a diabolical unconstitutional law that put many good men in jail, causing poverty and sorrow to their families. Just as Douglas and Buchanan, Lincoln would suffer the consequences of divine justice. In 1857, Bessie Kimball had pronounced a prophecy upon both Buchanan and Lincoln when he said, Will the president that sits in the chair of state be tipped from his seat? Yes, he will die an untimely death, and God Almighty will curse him. And he will also curse his successor, if he takes the same stand. And he will curse all those that are his kujatas, and all who sustain him. They shall be cursed, every man that lifts his heel against us from this day forth. Journal of Discourses Lincoln described his antagonism toward the Mormons in a letter to a Protestant minister. Two cankers are biting the very entrails of the United States today, the Romish and the Mormon priests. Both are equally at work to form a people of the most abject, ignorant and fanatical slaves, who will recognize no other but their supreme pontiffs. Both by aiming at the destruction of our schools themselves under our grand and holy principles of liberty of conscience to destroy that very liberty of conscience and bind the world before their heavy and ignominious yoke. The Mormon and Jesuit priests are equally and uncompromising enemies of our constitution and our laws. But the more dangerous of the two is the Jesuit and dash the Roman priest, for he knows better how to conceal his hatred under the mask of friendship and public good. He is better trained to commit the most cruel and diabolical deeds for the glory of God. How often when men gain wealth, power, and position they soon use it for abusive and evil means. With all that power and authority come temptations which few men can withstand, and they begin to exercise unrighteous dominion over others, even at the cost of lives and the destruction of their country. It was observed in 1860 that while these men, politicians, were drawing pay from the treasury of the United States, they were plotting for the destruction of the Union of the States. And while they were holding confidential relations with the chief executive, they were in constant communication with the insurgents, sending them information accessible only to the high officials of the government. And they remained in place as long as they could best serve their fellow conspirators, without exceeding the bounds of their personal safety. John B. Floyd, Secretary of War, wrote a secret letter as early as November 20, 1860, describing the states he wanted to secede from the Union. Even the death of Lincoln was a conspiracy within a conspiracy. Political ambition seems to cause an overzealous desire for two things and dash more money and more power. The King Crouchers in Washington, D.C., of all people, decided that they were worthy to make legislation on morality. How much positive influence does a minister have with the public when they know he visits prostitutes? 
Or how much confidence do legislators inspire when their own morals and standards are corrupt? The people in holy offices have been forbidden from passing judgment in civil legislation. So, too, should political leaders restrain themselves from passing laws on religious morality? The first of the blue laws was now instituted and was directed to the Mormons. About this time, a new political scheme was invented, sell land to the citizens, then keep raising the property taxes until they have difficulty paying the tax, then take the land away from them. Here was another piece of political corruption which has been going on ever since. Person Pratt described how this applied to the Mormons, by and by, after having secured this soil to our government by the Mormon battalion, and having redeemed it from its sterility, and built upwards of a hundred towns and settlements, it was sold to us. Did we find fault at having to pay for it? No. When the land office was opened in this territory two or three years ago, we considered it all right and we were willing to pay our money for it. But what now? Our bill is before Congress the object of which is to deprive us of the lands which we have paid for. The government has got our money in its treasury for lands we have bought and paid for, and for which it bargained to give us a deed and entered into a compact that we and our children after us should possess this land forever, and now Congress has got up a law to deprive every man in this territory, whose religious faith happens to differ from Congress, of these lands. Because we happen to differ on certain religious points with the general government, we are to be deprived of our homestead rights, guaranteed to us and to the people of all the territories of the United States by the laws of Congress. Journal of Discourses in 1870 Another anti-Mormon bill was proposed by Shelley M. Cullum of Illinois. It stipulated that all probate judges, justices, judges of elections, notaries and sheriffs be appointed by the governor of the territory. Anyone who even believed in polygamy was judged incompetent for public office, jury duty, or voting. A test vote was to be used. This political masterpiece afflicted the Mormons with packed juries, test oaths, a wife to testify against her husband, confiscation of property without due process, and deprivation of self-government. This corrupt law caught Brigham Young in a sweep and he was arrested and sent to jail. It was a part of the great crusade against Mormons, where politicians were telling people what they could believe and do within their own religion. The wonderful Protestant Christians of the United States government were demonstrating an age-old form of political pressure once practiced by Catholicism. The Protestants once suffered horrible injustices under the priestly powers of the Catholics, so now it was their turn to do the same against the Mormons. Eventually Congress would introduce over 20 anti-polygamy bills, mostly because of so many letters from the clergy. In 1874 another piece of legislation was introduced against the Mormons known as the Poland Bill. It was designed to take the power away from local courts in prosecuting polygamists and to hand it over to federal officers. However, both the Poland and Cullum bills were still not enough to satisfy the Washington politicians. Next they presented a bill written by Senator Edmonds. Hubert H. Bancroft described the questionable value of these three bills. Both of these measures were sufficiently ill-advised and rank, perhaps among the clumsiest specimens of legislation as yet devised by man. But it remained for the Edmonds Bill to cap the climax of absurdity. The Edmonds Bill would take away rights without a trial by jury or an opportunity of appeal. This bill was passed in 1882 with applause from these patriots who swore with an oath to God to support liberty and the Constitution, 
It was political despotism and kingcraft in the extreme. The willful depredation of the government was very obvious to most Americans, but the politicians delighted in the destruction of Mormonism and dash lawful or unlawful. It was an abomination that made the heavens weep and caused the wrath of the Lord to be aroused. In 1880 he revealed the following to Wilford Woodruff, The hour is at the door, when my wrath and indignation will be poured out upon the wicked of this nation. Their murders, blasphemies, lying, whoredoms, and abominations have come up before my face and before the heavens, and the wrath of my indignation is full. I have decreed plagues to go forth and waste my enemies, and not many years hence they shall not be left to pollute my heritage. The devil is ruling over his kingdom and my spirit has no place in the hearts of the rulers of this nation, and the devil stirs them up to defy my power and to make war upon my saints. And thus, with the sword and by bloodshed, and with famine and plagues and earthquakes and the thunder of heaven and the vivid lightning shall this nation and the nations of the earth be made to feel the chastening hand of an almighty God until they are broken up and destroyed and wasted away from under heaven, and no power can stay my hand. In spite of such outrages and to Mormon laws, the Gentile politicians devised further measures to gain the power they wanted in this territory. In the 1874 election in Tuoli County, they dishonestly managed to receive more than a thousand votes over the number of eligible voters. The outcry of fraud didn't matter in Dashley and justified the means. Many Mormons were refused the right to vote simply because they were Mormons. On the other hand, Many votes were cast by dead people and also in Dash it was charged that the railroads had brought in loads of men to vote the Gentile ticket, who, through the cooperation of the registrars and judges of the election, had been permitted to vote. Another point to be considered was that the term unlawful cohabitation referred only to plural marriage. If a man had a mistress, a prostitute or was an adulterer, it did not apply to him, and such actions were of minor consequence. It was all right to have more than one woman, but not more than one wife. With the passage of the Edmunds Bill, a new war began against the saints and dash not of bullets and bombs, but of bribes, trials, prisons, and always rewards. The battle began during the administration of Brigham Young and continued through John Taylor's and Wilford Woodruff's presidencies. The crusade included surprise raids on men's homes, farms, businesses and families, some wives and mothers were imprisoned along with the men. Many women went to jail for contempt of court when they would not testify against their husbands or fathers. Federal officials used a segregation ruling so a man could be convicted for every day he was found living with a plural wife and dash meaning it was possible to go to jail for the rest of his life. To avoid arrest many polygamists went into the underground, to Mexico, or to Canada. There was little protection of a man's inalienable rights within the United States or among its territories. The land of liberty was fast becoming a land of tyranny, as far as the Mormons were concerned. As a result of harsh enforcement of the law, the whole community was terrorized. Special government funds had been provided for the purpose, a large force of deputy marshals was employed, and a system of espionage inaugurated. Hunting cohabs became a lucrative employment. Deputies were disguised as hobos, tourists, or salesmen. They would snoop around at night peeking at potential victims through windows, stopping and questioning children coming home from school, and even breaking into homes in the middle of the night and hauling men and women up to jail. 
the first presidency of the church had to go underground to avoid such injustices in prison. However, they did write a letter to be read at the April 4, 1885, General Conference, which stated, juries have been selected for the express purpose of convicting men who are prominent in the church, and the partisan bias has become so thoroughly known in the community, that the common expression is, that an accusation in the courts, as now constituted, is equivalent to a conviction. The rule of jurisprudence which has come down for ages past has been that the accused shall be deemed innocent until proved guilty. In our courts, we are sorry to say, this has been reversed. We are fully conscious of our innocence of all violation of the laws of God or of constitutional laws enacted by man. But if there are laws made to entrap us, because of our belief in and practice of the revelations which God has given to his church, which a court and jury shall decide we have violated, we desire at least that it shall be upon what all the world calls good evidence and substantial proof, and not upon religious prejudice, and through a determination to convict and punish, evidence or no evidence. We ought, at least, to have the same rights that burglars, thieves and murderers are accorded under the law. However, the war was not considered one until all political rights were taken away from the Mormons, until all polygamists were locked up in jail, and until all their land was taken away from them. This would take another act of Congress. It came in 1887 in the form of the Edmunds Tucker Act. Included in its conditions was that all female suffrage in the territory was abolished, thus reducing the Mormon vote by at least half. A Mormon could be prevented from voting, holding office, or serving on a jury if he even believed in polygamy. The Perpetual Immigration Fund was abolished and its property confiscated. President Grover Cleveland supported this himself. The Mormon Church was disincorporated and all property over $50,000 was confiscated. The two Democratic administrations of Buchanan and Cleveland and Dash the only ones of the kind in 31 years and Dash stand out as the blackest pages in American history, so far as the treatment of the people of Utah is concerned. The Deseret Weekly printed the following article describing the appalling conditions of the church and its members at this time, the direct effort to destroy the temporal power of the church. The enactment of the Edmunds Tucker Act brought added pressure to an already difficult situation. Almost every Mormon male of any distinction was in prison or hiding, and many women were also forced to flee their homes. The economy stagnated and businesses were abandoned or limped along under inexperienced management. The church, which had always been a central factor in the stimulation of the saints' economy, was forced out of this activity when it was needed most. In addition, the expenses of the church were now greater than usual, and income was much less. Under the mounting debt, the church found it increasingly difficult to fulfill its missionary, educational, charitable, and business responsibilities. It appeared that the warning of one of the judges would be fulfilled, the will of the American people is expressed, severely, and this law will go on and grind you and your institution to powder. The Edmunds-Tucker Act was just what the national politicians had been hoping for. It was the bow that would propel the arrow to their target and dash the land, buildings and money of the Mormons. The day after the death of President John Taylor, the government lawyer, George S. Peters, commenced to confiscate all church property over $50,000, which was estimated to be over $3 million. U.S. Marshal Frank Dye began taking over all the assets. In succeeding weeks, 
upon the request of the receiver and with the reservation that an appeal would be made. Church authorities voluntarily surrendered the structures built on Temple Block, the General Tithing Office, the Church Historian's Office, the Gardo House, the Church Farm in Salt Lake City, the Office of the President of the Church, including all financial records, and the assets of the Perpetual Emigrating Company. Then these, claim jumpers, thought up another money-making scheme. After all this Mormon property had been seized, since they had no use for it, they would rent it back to the church. The Temple Block, the General Tithing Office, and the End Dash. Church Historian's Office were rented back to the church for $300 per month until March 1890, when the rent was raised to $500 per month. The Gardo House was rented to the church for $75 per month until April 1890, when the rent was raised to $450 per month, and the church farm was leased to the church for $50 a month until June 1889, when the rent was raised to $401 per month. Clerks in the office of the president of the church were discharged and two deputy marshals were placed in charge. Greed never seemed to be satisfied. So the confiscation of all this property was not enough. The federal agents then decided that since they were so successful in obtaining the large assets of the church, they would continue by taking over the smaller ones, too. They took stock in the Salt Lake Street Railroad, the Provoal Land Mills, ZCMI, and Zion's Savings Bank. They were delighted with their loot and continued to take coal mines, the Deseret News, Deseret Telegraph Company, and the Salt Lake Dramatic Association, plus nearly $300,000 in cash. Then they grabbed cattle, sheep, horses, high, grain and other farm products. It was amazing how profitable a little legislation by politicians and lawyers could be. This was turning out to be the most profitable craft of all crafts. If the stories about the Mormons as printed in the Eastern newspapers in the 1880s were true, then Salt Lake City was becoming one of the worst communities for crime in the United States. By simple investigation, however, the facts proved otherwise, as a non-Mormon Utah commissioner, A.B. Carlton, wrote, It is a fact, shown by statistics, that while only about one-fifth of the population are Gentiles, they contribute at least four-fifths of the crimes of a heinous character. Federal political leaders were planning to bring all of their arts and crafts into the area so we could be more like them. Our outside friends say they want to civilize us here. What do they mean by civilization? Why they mean by that, to establish gambling holes and dash they are called gambling hells and dash grog shops and houses of ill fame on every corner of every block in the city. Also swearing, drinking, shooting and debauching each other. Then they would send their missionaries here with faces as long as jackasses' ears, who would go crying and groaning through the streets, Oh, what a poor, miserable, sinful world. That is what is meant by civilization. That is what priests and deacons want to introduce here. Tradesmen want it, lawyers and doctors want it, and all hell wants it. But the saints do not want it, and we will not have it. Congregation said Amen. Journal of Discourses out of the 20 counties of the Territory, most of which are populous. 13 are today without a dram shop, brewery, gambling or brothel house, bowling or billiard saloon, lawyer, doctor, parson, beggar, politician or place hunter, and almost entirely free from social troubles of every kind. Yet these counties are exclusively Mormon.
and with the exception of a now and then domestic doctor or lawyer, the entire territory was free from these adjuncts of civilization. Till after the advent of the professing Christian element, boastingly here to regenerate the Mormons, and today every single disreputable concern in Utah is run and fostered by the very same Christian element. Oaths, imprecations, blasphemies, invectives, expletives, blackguardism, the ordinary dialect of the anti-Mormon, were not heard in Utah till after his advent, nor till then, did we have litigation, drunkenness, harlotry, political and judicial deviltries, gambling and kindred enormities. Journal of Discourses The Gentiles believed that women in polygamy were slaves, so they decided to save them. A huge mansion, or hotel, was constructed by the government so the polygamous wives who escaped would be able to find refuge. However, once again, this turned out to be another bureaucracy blunder, as the following news article reported in 1928, Old Fifth East Hotel is sold. Property built by government for $300,000 finally sold for $15,000. Built 44 years ago as a reputed cost of $300,000, what is now known as the Fifth East Hotel, was placed on the auction block Saturday and not down to $15,000 before it found the purchaser. The Fifth East Hotel was built originally as a home for the polygamous wives of Utah, but was not long devoted to that purpose. Built for women struggling in the chains of polygamy, it had four unsuccessful years and the project had to be abandoned. The home for polygamous wives soon became one of those private territorial jokes and by 1892 it was recognized as a failure. On June 15, 1893, the home closed its doors. Samuel W. Taylor wrote made an interesting comment about this fiasco, the slave wife issue so captivated the public imagination that the Gentiles actually raised the money and built an imposing building in Salt Lake as a refuge. Much to the dismay of the backers, only one woman took advantage of the refuge, and the project was abandoned in confusion when it was discovered that she was not a slave wife, but a prostitute. This building, pictured below, was a monument to the stupidity of our Washington politicians and kingcrafters. Picture of building, notwithstanding the great political strides made by the Edmunds Tucker Act in legalizing the confiscation of church property and imprisonment of its leaders, more new bills were proposed. One was that Cullum Struble bill. It would disenfranchise the Mormon people and take away all their personal property. In the election of 1888, in order to rid themselves, if possible, of intolerable political conditions and dash. Large numbers of the Latter-day Saints withdrew from membership in the church, that they might qualify as electors by taking the test oath to the effect that they were not only not bigamists or polygamists, but that they were not even members of any sect or organization which teaches, advises, or encourages the practice of bigamy or polygamy, or any other crime defined by law, as a duty or privilege resulting, or arising from the faith or practice of such order or organization. The federal government was administering test oaths to Mormons on religious issues. The Catholic Church had used similar oaths, but they had been consigned to their own church. The political progress of America was reversing itself to a kingcraft of over 600 years ago, superseding the darkness of the Dark Ages. Were the Washington politicians so blind and naive as to think that their restrictions and laws would cause a devout people to give up their beliefs and practices of eternal gospel principles? 
Where did these government leaders get the right to prohibit people from voting and holding public office and incarcerating them because of religious differences? Why was such a belief in plural marriage so terrible that they sought to destroy a whole church and take away all of its property? These politicians didn't include in their tirades any other immoral acts such as prostitution, homosexuality, adultery, etc. They even thought it was fashionable to have their mistresses. In fact, most of them were guilty of immoral sins themselves. It was strictly the polygamist who was to be destroyed and dash religiously, socially and financially. How strange that the Bible sanctioned plural marriage, but recommended death for serious moral sins. A reversal in moral standards was now in force. That which was sanctioned by the Lord was forbidden, and that which was forbidden by the Lord was sanctioned by the politicians. King Crouchers were claiming more and more victories. In the local elections city after city passed into their hands. In 1889, after a close and hotly contested municipal election in which the Saints again levied charges of fraud, Salt Lake City and Ogden, Utah's principal cities, were captured by the Liberals, whose jubilation knew no bounds. The dominant influence of Utah public life by the Mormons was at an end, and with it died a fascinating and challenging era in American history. From both outside and inside the church, people clamored for some form of compromise with the U.S. government. President Wilford Woodruff finally decided to issue a political compromise. National leaders and church leaders are said to have entered into a compact. We do not know whether such a compact was actually made, but at least the agreement and actions which it is said to have involved did take place. Leonard Arrington recalled further, as a part of the deal by which this was arranged, church officials are said to have given congressional and administration leaders to understand that they would support a proposition to prohibit forever the practice of polygamy in Utah, that the church would dissolve its People's Party and divide itself into Republican and Democratic supporters, and that the church would discontinue its alleged fight against Gentile business and relax its own economic efforts. Some or all of these pledges may not have been made, but certain people later alleged that they were made and that the granting of statehood to Utah in 1896, the restoration of church property in 1894 and 1896, and the amnesties granted to Mormon polygamists in 1893 and 1894, were all conditioned upon this understanding. Thus, the Mormons gave up plural marriage, the United Order, and their political system. The pledge was the manifesto. Tensions were alleviated, prosecutions diminished, and better feelings between Mormons and Gentiles ensued. But what a price to pay. History records the similarities between the Latter-day Saints and the Israelites of the Old Testament. They, too, chose to become as the rest of the world and begged Samuel for a king, like all the nations. The Lord told Samuel to end Ash hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The Lord said to make them a king, but I first warned them what would happen under a king's reign. The rest of chapter 8 in 1 Samuel describes the servitude that would result, but the people still insisted on a king. Today, Americans have insisted on having the kingcraft of politicians rather than the kingdom of God. And, as before, the king of kings has granted their wish. 229. Okay, we'll get into the part where I'm reading with my commentary now. Um, 
This is the second to last program that we'll be doing on this book. On Friday, uh, we will be covering the last portion of this book. And then on Monday, we'll be starting on a new book. So I'm not sure which one that is. Um, but anybody can message me at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977 and uh, suggest any Ogden Kraut books for me to read that you would like to hear. You can find a list of his books free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. And I will be taking suggestions for books that... Uh, that people would like me to read as long as I have not read them on this particular program before. I'll consider them. Okay, so it's a pretty long one. So this is probably going to take up most of the program, but I'll get into it. Under the Color of Law, pages 212 to 228 of Four Crafts. Government politicians and kingcrafters succeeded in driving the Mormons out of the United States and then enjoyed taking over their lands and buildings. With the sweet taste of success, they decided to once again benefit from the assets of the hard-working saints in the Salt Lake Valley, so they tried to use their military powers to rob them again. Since this attempt was unsuccessful, they approached it from another angle. They would resort to lawyers. By acting under the color of law, the kingcrafters could continue their legal piracy until both church and personal property would be confiscated. After all, politicians and lawyers are close, close bedfellows. In 1852, Brigham Young announced publicly that plural marriage was a tenet of the Mormon faith. In 1856, the Republican Party included polygamy alongside, along with slavery as one of the t twin relics of barbarism. By February 15, 1860, the Republican senator from Vermont introduced a bill to punish and prevent the practice of polygamy in the territories. This was definitely a law against the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Congress had no power to act against the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. But that didn't matter. Since this bill was direct, directed only at the Mormons in the territories, it was bound to be approved. On April 5, 1860, the House of Representatives passed the anti-polygamy bill by a vote of 149 to 60. One year later, the Civil War began, and that was an unconstitutional law. Like, we believe that the Constitution is inspired of God and is next to Scripture, and these men, these government leaders, do not uphold their oath to protect the Constitution. They didn't then, and they do not now. One year later, the Civil War began. In April of 1862, Senator Morrill added a part about the accumulation of property and wealth of the community 
in the hands of what may be called theocratic institutions inconsistent with for, with our form of government and quote mormons americans and poli- uh, politics page 498 this would limit the mormon church holdings to fifty thousand dollars or else it would have to be forfeited to the united states government on july 2nd 1862 abraham lincoln signed the anti-polygamy bill or on page 213 if you're reading along. Lincoln, like Stephen A. Douglas, had met the prophet Joseph Smith and had even sat in a session in which he heard the Nauvoo Charter read. He once exclaimed that he would treat the Mormons like a large tree in his field, too hard to burn and too big to remove, so he would leave it alone and just plow around it. But Honest Abe soon changed his view. Strange as it may seem, many of the states were seceding from the Union at the time when the Mormons were trying to join it. Some of the states were discarding the Constitution while Mormons were defending it. The Union was trying to keep the rebels as as states, but was refusing the admission of Utah as a state. President Lincoln's destiny to become President of the United States came because he took the place of a man who had turned against the Mormons. However, shortly after taking the oath to support the Constitution, he too turned against the saints and was later tipped from the glory, honor, and power of his office. By the use of his political power, Lincoln promulgated the hatred against the Mormons together with a diabolical unconstitutional law that put many good men in jail, causing poverty and sorrow to their families, just as Douglas and Buchanan, Lincoln would suffer the consequences of divine justice. In 1857, Heber C. Kimball had pronounced a prophecy upon both Buchanan, who was president from 1857 to 1861, and Lincoln, who was president from 1861 to 1865, when he said, quote, Will the president that sits in the chair of the state be tipped from his seat? Yes, he will die an untimely death, and God Almighty will curse him, and he will also curse his successor if he takes the same stand, and he will curse all those that that are his co-adjutors and all who sustain him. They, they shall be cursed, every man that lifts his heel against us from that day to the... Uh, from this day forth. Journal of Discourses. Volume 5, page 133. So, let's see here. So, 18, it was 1857 that Heber C. Kimball said that. And then Buchanan was president from 1857 to 1861. And then Lincoln was president from 1861 to 1865. So Lincoln was in the presidency for three years before he was assassinated. And Buchanan, uh, he was voted out of office, but there was a curse on him as well. Anyway, we're on page 214. 
Lincoln described his antagonism towards the Mormons in a letter to the Protestant minister, quote, Two cankers are biting at the very entrails of the United States today, the Ramish and the Mormon priests. Both are equally at work to form a people in the, in the most abject, ignorant, and fanatical slaves who will recognize no other but their supreme pontiffs. Both are aiming at the destruction of our schools, themselves under our grand and holy principles of liberty of conscience to destroy that very liberty of conscience and bind the world before their heavy and ignominious yoke. The Mormon and the Jesuit priests are equally and uncompromising enemies of our constitution and our laws, but the more dangerous of the two is the Jesuit the Roman priests, for as he knows better how to conceal his hatred under the mask of friendship and public good, he is better trained to commit the most cruel and diabolical deeds for the glory of God. End quote, and that was 50 years in the Church of Rome by Pastor Shinqui, I guess, page 488. How often, when men gain wealth, power, and position, they soon use it for abusive and evil means. With all that power and authority come temptations which few men can withstand, and they begin to exercise unrighteous dominion over others. Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, verse 39. Even at the cost of the lives and the destruction of their country, it was observed in 1860 that while these men speaking of the politicians, were drawing pay from the treasurer of the United States. They were plotting for the destruction of the union of the states, and while they were holding confidential relations with the chief executive, they were in constant communication with the insurgents, sending them information accessible only to the high officials of the government, and they remained in place as long as they could be best serve their fellow conspirators without heeding, exceeding the bounds of their personal safety. And quote, History of the United States by Bryant, Gay, and Brooks, volume 4, page 440, or on page 215 if you're reading along. John B. Foyd, Secretary of War, wrote a secret letter as early as November 20, 1860, describing the states he wanted to secede from the Union. Even the death of Lincoln was a conspiracy within a conspiracy. Political ambition seemed to cause an overzealous desire for two things, more money and more power. The Kingcrafters in Washington, D.C., of all people, decided that they were worthy to make legislation on morality. How much positive influence does a minister have with the public when they know he visits prostitutes? Or how much confidence do legislatures inspire when their own morals and standards are corrupt? The people in ho holy office have been forbidden from passing judgment in civil legislation, so too should political leaders restrain themselves from passing laws on religious morality. The first of the blue laws was now instituted and was directed at the Mormons. About this time, a new political scheme was invented. Sell lands, sell land to the citizens, then keep raising the property taxes until they have difficulty paying the tax. Then take the land away from them. 
Here was another piece of political corruption which has been going on ever since. Orson Pratt described how this applied to the Mormons. Quote, by and by, after having secured this soil to, to our government by the Mormon battalion and having redeemed it from its sterility and built upwards of a hundred towns and settlements, it was sold to us. Did we find fault in having to pay for it? No. When the land office was opened in this territory two or three years ago, we considered it all right and we were willing to pay our money for it. But what now? A bill before Congress is the object of which is to deprive us of the lands which we have paid for. The government has got our money in its treasury for lands we have bought and paid for and for which it bargains to give us a deed and entered into the compact that we and our children after us should possess this land however and now congress are forever and now congress has got up a new law to deprive every man of his territory whose religious faith happens to differ from congress of these lands because we happen to differ on certain religious points with the general government we are to be deprived of our homestead rights guaranteed to us and to the people of all the territories of the United States by the laws of Congress and quote Journal of Discourses volume 13 page 137 in 1870 another anti-Mormon bill was proposed by Shelley M. Cullum of Illinois it was stipulated that all probate judges justices Judges of elections, notaries, and sheriffs be appointed by the government of the territory. Anyone who believed in polygamy was judged incompetent for public office, uh, public office, jury duty, or voting. A test vote was to be used. This political masterpiece afflicted the Mormons with packed juries, test oaths, a wife to testify against her husband, confiscation of property without due process, and the deprivation of self-government. This corrupt law caught Brigham Young in its sweep, and he was arrested and sent to jail. He was a part of the great crusade against the Mormons where politicians were telling people what they could believe and do within their own religion. The wonderful Protestant Christians, Christians in quotes, of the United States government were demonstrating an age-old form of political pressure once practiced by Catholicism. The Protestants once suffered horrible injustices under the priestly powers of the Catholics, so now it was their turn to do the same against the Mormons. Eventually, Congress would introduce over 20 anti-polygamy bills, mostly because of so many letters from the clergy. Page 217. In 1874, another piece of legislation was introduced against the Mormons known as the Poland Bill. It was designed to take the power away from local courts in prosecuting polygamists and to hand over over to federal officers. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, both the Poland and uh, Colum bills were still not enough to satisfy Washington politicians. Next, they presented a bill written by Senator Edmonds. Hubert H. Bancroft described the questionable value of these three bills. 
Both of these measures were sufficiently ill-advised and rank, perhaps among the clumsiest specimen of legislation as yet devised by men, but it remained for the Edmonds Bill to cap and climax of a, the cap and climax of absurdity. And that comes from Bancroft's History of Utah, page 683. The Edmonds Bill would take away rights without a trial by jury or an opportunity of appeal. This bill was passed in 1882 with applause from these patriots who swore with an oath to God to support liberty and the Constitution. It was political despotism and kingcraft in the extreme. The willful depredation of government was very obvious to most Americans, but the politicians delighted in the in the destruction of Mormonism, lawful or unlawful. It was an abomination that made the heavens weep and caused the wrath of God to be aroused. In 1880, he revealed the following to Wilfred Woodruff, quote, and this is one of the revelations that the church has hidden under, they, they hide it from you. If you want to know more about the revelations which were received uh, between 1880 and 1890, which have nothing to do with the manifesto of the 1890. Um, there's a book at com that you can go and read. It's called Revelations 1880 to 1890. Anyway, this was a revelation given by Jesus Christ to Wilfred Woodruff. The hour is at the door when my wrath and indignation will be poured out upon the wicked of this nation. Their murders, blasphemies, lyings, whoredoms, and abominations have come up before my face and before the heavens, and the wrath of my indignation is full. I have decreed plagues to go forth and waste mine enemies, and not many years hence they shall not be left to pollute mine heritage. By the way, we're on page 218. The devil is ruling over his kingdom, and my spirit has no place in the hearts of the rulers of this nation. And the devil stirs them up to defy my power and to make war upon my saints, which is uh, a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about the little horn making war upon the saints until the Ancient of Days comes. The Ancient of Days, by the way, is Father Adam. You know, Adam and Eve. Adam, the Ancient of Days. Well, if you go from Daniel chapter 7 to Daniel chapter 12, you'll see that the man who sits in the throne who stands up in the last days, is Michael. Michael, who is Father Adam. When Michael came and, and he was placed in the Garden of Eden by Jehovah our Elohim, Michael took upon himself the name of Adam, amen, who is God the Eternal Father, and Eve, or Hava, took upon herself the name of God the Eternal Mother. By the way, um, Michael's wife, who is Eve, her name was Ashura, and Satan has used her name as a pagan goddess to try to destroy who she is because of his vindictive nature. So the Ashura of paganism is a lie, and the devil is a liar, but the Ashura of, of God who became Hava and who was the wife of Michael, who became Adam, that's her name. That is the name of your, your mother. 
our mother. Anyway, continuing on with this revelation by Jesus Christ to Wilfred Woodruff. And thus with the sword and by bloodshed and with famine and plague and earthquake and the thunder of heaven and the vivid lightnings shall this nation and the nations of the earth be made to feel the chastening hand of the Almighty God until they are broken up and destroyed and wasted away from under heaven and no power can stay my hands. Anyway, that's a revelation. That is part of a revelation which is listed in uh, the book Revelations 1880-1890 by Ogden Kraut, which you can find at ogdenkraut.com. And that is pages 8 and 11. It's a long revelation. You should go take a look at it. In spite of such outrageous... Oh, by the way, this nation is going to be destroyed. Completely. Like from time to time, God chastens us. But the time is coming when this nation will burn to ashes. And the remnant will be found in the highways of the top of the mountains and in the desert places where Zion will be redeemed in the wilderness. And when the patriots are about, about completely uh, annihilated, we will come down out of our hiding place in the Rocky Mountains and two of us will taste, uh, chase 10,000 because we will have the fullness of the priesthood. See, I already have the fullness of the priesthood because it was given to me by the Father himself. But he is the only one that can give it to you. And there has to be a people prepared to receive it. They had the opportunity in Nauvoo to build that temple that is talked about in DNC section 124. But they dragged their feet and they became a cursed and rejected church and people. But God's giving them a second chance. But it, is it only a residue of the people or a remnant that Isaiah sees? And when they build the tabernacle in the wilderness and become a Zion people, God will give the fullness of the priesthood to those people. And we will help clean this land of all wickedness. And those individuals who are going to the center place at this time are fools. Because when Zion rested in its place in the Gulf of Mexico, there is going to be a wall of water which goes up the Mississippi, Missouri, and Ohio river basins. And everything, including trees and vegetation and buildings and living uh, animals and people and the corpses of those people and animals, everything will be completely dragged out. And it will be completely cleansed. And then and only then will Adam and Andiamen happen. Because when Zion rests in its place in the Gulf of Mexico with Mount Vashel, who, where I have been, and the temple of God rests upon the earth again, we will come down out of Mount Vashel, out from the clouds, and come down to Adam and on Diamond. And that is, that is when the church of the firstborn comes down on the earth, and all of the resurrected patriarchs and prophets will come down, including Father Adam, who is Michael, including myself, one likened to the Son of Man, and we will come to Adam and Andiamen. And certain individuals who are proclaiming that Adam and Andiamen has already happened, they are what you call false prophets, Judas goats, 
people who have an air of charismatic religiosity who behind the scenes are wicked. They are wicked in the extreme. You have no idea how wicked these individuals are who pretend to be prophets. They are Judas goats. They are meant as a tool to lead away those who are waking up. And as they're waking up in their days, they're looking for something to latch on to and they are going to these charismatic individuals who are devils, who come as an angel of light, a minister of light, and their charismatic nature, people follow them. But your spirit is telling you that there's something wrong. But the spirit's only going to tell you that for so long because you're going to enjoy the things that they have to say, and they're going to tell you many true things. But at key points of doctrine, they are leading you astray. They're sifting you off. Only of the elect of God will will pass these tests. Will make it through these these men who are sifters, who are devils, who proclaim to be prophets, who are not prophets. And and you see their smiling face, and they have an air of religiosity around them. But secretly, they are devils. And their fruit is rotten. Continuing on. In spite of such outrageous anti-Mormon laws, the Gentile politicians devised further measures to gain the power they wanted in this territory. In 1874 election, the 1874 election in Tooele County, they dishonestly managed to receive more than a thousand votes over the number of eligible voters. Oh, I wonder where that... You know, like we're talking about those things happening in our day and age. That happened back in 1874. It's a political trick that that the devil uses to gain control. That's how we have the the president, the, the current... I don't even know what you call him, imbecile in chief... Like, we're the laughing stock of the world, but the, the election was stolen. He does not represent the majority of good constitutional people in this country. He represents the left, the satanic left, the imbecile in chief. What, what else can we call him? The cadaver in chief? Pretty much. I mean, this is weekend at Bernie's. We're living... In, in part two of Weekend at Bernie's right now. Except for it's not just a boss, it's the political uh, chief executive of the nation. The outcry of fraud didn't matter. The end just, ends justified the means. Oh, you know, stolen, stolen elections. Many Mormons refused to the right were refused the right to vote simply because they were Mormons. On the other hand, many votes were casted by dead people. Oh my gosh, like it still happens. It was charged that the railroads had brought in loads of men to vote the Gentile ticket who 
through the cooperation of the registers and judges of the election, had been permitted to vote. And quote, the Utah Commission by Stuart Logfrin Grow, and that's his doctoral dissertation at the University of Utah, which can be found starting on page 211. Another point to be considered was that the term unlawful cohabitation referred only to plural marriage. If a man had a mistress, a prostitute, or was an adulterer, it didn't apply to him, as much act- and such actions were of minor consequence. It was all right to have more than one woman, but not more than one wife. Page 219, or at 42%. With the passage of the Edmunds Bill, a new war began against the saints, not of bullets and bombs, but of bribes, trials, prisons, and always rewards. The battle began during the administration of Brigham Young and continued through John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff's presidencies. The crusade included surprise raids on men's homes, farms, businesses, and families, Some wives and mothers were imprisoned along with the men. Many women went to jail for contempt of court when they they would not testify against their husbands or fathers. Federal officers used a segregation ruling so a man could be convicted for every day he was found living with a plural wife, meaning it was possible to go to jail for the rest of his life. To avoid arrest, Many polygamists went into the underground to Mexico or to Canada. There was little protection of man's inalienable rights or inalienable rights within the United States or among its territories. The land of liberty was fast becoming a land of tyranny. And it has been ever since. As far as the Mormons were concerned. But it's a land of tyranny completely now, completely. Your constitutional republic does not exist anymore. It does not exist. And this nation is going to be destroyed, and they want it to be destroyed. But they're not going to inhabit this land. Because the elect of God are going to be the ones that inhabit this land. And if you are not part of the remnant, you are probably not 99.9% sure not to be part of those people which inhabit this land. Your corpse will be gone. Not even your corpse will remain. As a result of harsh enforcement of the law, the whole community was terrorized. Special government funds had been provided for the purpose. A large force of deputy marshals was employed in a system of espionage inaugurated. Hunting cohabitants gave a lucrative employment. And quote witness history of Utah page three hundred and eighty eight and we're at page we're at forty seven percent right now. Deputies were disguised as hobos, tourists or salesmen. They would snoop around at night, peek into potential victims through win- windows, stopping and questioning children coming from from school and even breaking into homes in the middle of the night and hauling men and women off to jail. Page 220. 
The first presidency of the, of the church had to go underground to avoid such injustices in prison. However, they did write a letter to be read at the uh, April 4th, 1885 General Conference, which stated, juries have been selected for the express purpose of convicting men who are prominent in the church and their partisan bias has become so thoroughly known in the community that the common expression is that an accusation in courts as now constitute to, is now constituted is equivalent to a conviction. The rule of jurisprudence, which has come down for ages past, has been that the accused shall be deemed innocent until proven guilty. In our courts, we are sorry to say this has been reversed. We are fully conscious of our innocence of all violations of the laws of God or of the constitutional laws enacted by man. But if there are laws made to entrap us because of our beliefs in in and practice of the revelations which God has given to his church, which a court and jury shall decide we have violated, we desire at least that it shall be upon what all the world calls good evidence and substantial proof and not upon religious prejudice and through a determination to convict and punish evidence or no evidence, we ought at least have the same rights that burglars, thieves, and murderers are accorded under the law. Message of the First Presidency, Volume 3, pages 6 and 8. However, the war was not considered won until all political rights were taken away from the Mormons, until all polygamists were locked up in jail, and until all their land was taken away from them. This would take another act of Congress. It came in 1887, so that was during the time of John Taylor, in the form of the Edmunds-Tucker Act. Included in its condition was that all female suffrage in the territory was abolished, thus reducing the Mormon vote by at least half, meaning women couldn't vote. Did you know that Utah was the first place where women could vote? A Mormon could be prevented from voting, holding office, or serving in a jury even if he had believed in polygamy, just to believe in polygamy. The Perpetual Immigration Fund was abolished and its property was confiscated. President Grover Cleveland supported this himself. The Mormon Church was disincorporated of all property over $50,000 and all the property and all of it was confiscated by the government. The government, the government who swore an oath to uphold and protect the Constitution. They did it then. They do not uphold the Constitution now. They do not uphold the Constitution now. Your constitutional republic does not exist. And this nation is going to be destroyed by the wicked. In 2013, when God commanded me to sever the power or priesthood of all the holy people, 
that was the time when the plagues, uh, spiritual and physical plagues, began to come upon the face of the earth. And since 2013, you are beginning to see the left go crazy. This whole world has gone into a, a grand commotion. These people are lunatics because they are possessed by demons. And they will destroy themselves. Did you know that the other day Boston University created a, a COVID virus which is 80% lethal through gain-of-function research? Did you know that recently the government purchased millions and millions of dollars worth of medication which is, uh, is um, it's used to prevent your innards from becoming your outards during a mass radiation exposure and there is enough for 115,000 doses do you have any idea how many people are in government? It's enough to cover them. Not you. Not you. Just them. They are pushing for thermonuclear biological war. They want it to happen. When I was told in 2016 to come to Emory County, Utah and to tell people to flee the populated areas and that Emory County, Utah was the place of the gathering for the remnant, I've been telling that and, and sharing that for the past six or seven years. I think I got the revelation in 2015 and I got here in 2016. No idea where I was going to live. There's not a lot of places to rent down here. No idea where I was going to go, but I knew that this is where God wanted me to be. And we lived in a house, in a crappy house with ridiculous um, landlords who stole our deposit and our we had we were forced to pay first and last month's rent and when they told us that they were going to sell their house which they didn't because they cursed their house uh they actually told us that we had to get out and I said okay well if we have to move then I'm using my my you know my first and last month's rent I'm going to use that then for this month and they gave us a 3 day pay or quit move out there was black mold behind the walls in the kit of both the kids' rooms. They said that we were the best tenants they ever had, but they stole our money. Now we live on a 10-acre farm now, which needs to be cultivated, and people need to come here and help me figure that out. We've got about five acres for a Zion's garden complete with the irrigation but we only have five shares because the people that sold us this place did not give us 21 shares of water that were supposed to come with the property but we have the land 
this is the gathering place and there are people coming. I've met people who did not know about me that have come here because God told them this is where they need to be. And I've been given the warning cry that this is happening and I don't know when, okay? I don't know the timelines. Not even a little bit. But this is where the community has to be. Because when it gets too dangerous to remain here, we will go into the secret places in the desert where God has showed me to lead the people. And we will remain there until Zion is redeemed among us while this nation is burning to ashes. And when the time comes, when the patriots are almost annihilated, at that point we will come down out of the mountains with the fullness of the priesthood. This isn't my imagination. This is my instruction from the Father, who I am an eyewitness of. I am an apostle of the Father and an apostle of Jesus Christ, who I have seen face-to-face in the flesh. And my message is for the inhabitants of North America, mostly, but my but my words sprinkle the nations through the social media in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 49 where it talks about the Davidic servant sprinkling the world with his word that happens through social media the fulfillment of that prophecy is this radio show and social media okay we're 55% through the reading for today The two Democratic administrations of Buchanan and Cleveland, the only ones ones of the kind in 31 years, stand out as the blackest pages in American history so far as the, the treatment of the people of Utah is concerned. End quote, Lights and Shadows of Mormonism by Josiah Gibbs, page 335. The Deseret Weekly printed the following article describing the appalling conditions of the church and its members at this time. Quote, a direct effort to destroy the temporal power of the church, the enactment of the Edmonds-Tucker Act, brought added pressure to an already difficult situation. Almost every Mormon male of any distinction was in prison or hiding, and many women were also forced to flee their homes. Like, and so, like, these people weren't even able to support themselves or their families because of unconstitutional demonic laws passed by the wicked and, and disgusting, disgusting corrupt men of this country. And the darkness, the gross darkness that lies in the hearts of those men then lies in the hearts of these men now, men and women. You look to your political leaders as gods and they are Satan incarnate. Even the ones you think are good, they are wicked, wicked, evil, evil, satanic messengers of light.
The economy stagnated and businesses were abandoned or limped along under inexperienced management. The church, which had always been a central factor in the stimulation of the saints' economy, was forced out of this activity when it was most needed. In addition, the expenses of the church were now greater than usual and income was much less. Under the mounting debt of the the church found it increasingly difficult to fulfill its missionary, educational, charitable, and business responsibilities. It appeared that the warning of one of the judges would be fulfilled, quote, the will of the American people is expressed severely, and this law will go on and grind you and your institution to powder. October 21st, 1885, page 625. The Edmunds-Tucker Act was just what the national politicians had been hoping for. This was the bow that would propel the arrow to their target, the land, buildings, and money of the Mormons. Page 222, we're at 60%. The day after the death of President John Taylor, the government lawyer George S. Peters commenced suit to confiscate all church property over 50000 which was estimated to be over $3 million. U.S. Marshal Frank Dyer began taking over all the assets. And guess where Frank Dyer is today? He's in spirit prison. I cannot wait to sit in judgment against these people. I will sit at the bar of God. And I will pass judgment upon every one of the wicked, along with the Father and the Son. And I look forward to that day. In succeeding weeks, upon the request of the receiver and with the reservation that an appeal would be made, church authorities voluntarily surrendered the structures built on Temple Block, the General Tithing Office, the Church Historian's Office, the Gerarda House, the Church Farm in Salt Lake City, and the Office of the President of the Church, including all financial records, and the assets of the Perpetual Immigrating Company, and quote, Great Basin Kingdom by Leonard Arrington, page 368. When these claim jumpers thought up another money-making scheme after all this Mormon property had been seized, since they had no use for it, they would rent it back to the church. The temple block, the general tithing office, the church historian's office were rented back to the church for $300, later reduced to $200 per month until March of 1890 when the rent was raised to $500 per month. The Garada House was rented to the church for $75 a month until April of 1890 when the rent was raised to $450 per month and the church farm was leased to the church for $50 a month until June 1889 when the rent was raised to $401 per month. Clerks they, they stole their property and then they rented it back to them. Life, liberty, and property, anyone? Oh, no, no, that's what it was. No, it's the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, which 
that nut and a dollar might give you a cup of coffee. Because the pursuit of happiness means nothing. It was life, liberty, and property before, but they took that away from you. They took that right away from you. They, they do it through your property taxes. Those wicked men who can print off money, which is what they're doing, that's why we're seeing inflation happening right now. They print off money. They, they want to charge you for your property and your wealth. And like another scheme that they just came up with was, uh, oh, you know what? If you have something that you're going to sell that you already paid for and we already taxed the money of the original person and then they use that money to pay for a couch and then they tax that too, which is double taxation, which is also unconstitutional. And you decide that you want to sell your couch that you already paid for to somebody, then you have to pay taxes on the money that they pay you. See, you're a slave. You are a tax slave in a land that pretends to have a constitutional republic. It doesn't exist anymore. You're on the plantation. You are a tax slave. This is not the land of liberty. They figured out how to how to make you into a slave and for you not to to rebel. And they've dumbed you down so much that you don't even know what's happening to you. Some of you do. Clerks in the office of the president of the church were discharged and two deputy marshals were placed in charge. Quote, and that was from page uh, 369 of the same book that we've been quoting from. Greed never seemed to be satisfied, so the confiscation of all this property was not enough. The federal agents then decided that since they were so, so successful in obtaining large assets of the church, they would continue taking over smaller ones too. They took stock in the Salt Lake City or the Salt Lake Street Railroad, the Provo Woolen Mills, ZCMI, the Zion Savings Bank. They and they were delighted with their loot and continued to take from the coal mines, the Deseret News, the Deseret Telegraph Company, and the Salt Lake uh, Dramatic Association, plus nearly $300,000 in cash. They grabbed cattle, sheep, horses, hay, grain, and other farm products. And was, it was amazing how profitable a little, a little legislation by politicians and lawyers could be. And like just because they pass a law on it doesn't mean that it's moral or legal in the eyes of God. They sign a paper and then they decide to steal from you. They are thieves and liars and robbers. And they will be burned in the lake of fire and cast off after they have been annihilated into outer darkness where they deserve to be. Oh, there will be justice. The worst kind of justice that they ever thought possible. And they thought that they were going to do a good, uh, that they were okay. Oh, well, let's sign this and then all of a sudden it's not wrong anymore. It's right. Guess what? Guess what? The devil's a liar. 
The devil's a liar. And Jesus is coming for you. You will have a day of judgment. You will be destroyed along with your father who is the devil, who is a liar. This was turning out to be the most profitable craft of all the crafts. If the stories about the Mormons as printed in the Eastern papers in 1880 were true, then Salt Lake City was becoming one of the worst communities for crime in the United States. By simple investigation, however, the facts proved otherwise, as non-Mormon Utah Commissioner A.B. Carlton wrote, quote, It is a fact shown by statistics that while only about one-fifth of the population are Gentiles, they contribute at least to four-fifths of the crimes of, the heinous, uh, of a heinous character. Correlated History of the Church, Volume 6, page 556. The federal political leaders were planning to bring all of their arts and crafts into the area so we could be more like them. Our outside friends say they want to civilize us here. What do they mean by civilization? Why they mean by that to establish gambling houses where they are called gambling halls, grog shops and houses of ill fame, on every corner and every block of the city, also swearing, drinking, shooting, and debauching each other. Then they would send their missionaries here with faces as long as a jackass's ears who would go and cry and groan through the streets, oh, what a poor, miserable, sinful world. That is what is meant by civilization among the Gentiles. That is what priests and deacons want their priests and deacons want to introduce here. Tradesmen want it, lawyers and doctors want it, and all hell itself wants it. But the saints do not want it, and we will not have it. And quote, Congregation said amen. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, volume 12, page 286 to 287. Out of the 20 counties of the territory, most of which are uh, populous, Thirteen today are without a dram shop, brewery, gambling or brothel house, bowling or billiard saloons, lawyers, doctors, parsons, beggars, politicians, or place hunter, and almost entirely free from social troubles of every kind. Yet these counties are exclusively Mormon, and their exception of the of a now and then domestic doctor or lawyer. The entire territory is free from these adjuncts of civilization till after the advent of the professing Christian element, boasting here to regenerate the Mormons, and today every single disreputable concern in Utah is run and fostered by, this, by the very same Christian element. Oaths, imprecations, blasphemies, invectives, expletives, Black guardianisms, the ordinary dialect of the anti-Mormon were not heard in Utah till after his advent, nor till then did we have litigation, drunkenness, harlotry, political and judicial devil, I don't know what that word is, deviltries, gambling and kindred enormities. Anyway, that was by John Taylor, Journal of Discourses, 23, uh, volume 23, page 59. 
The Gentiles believed that women in polygamy were slaves, so they decided to save them. A huge mansion or hotel was constructed by the government so the polygamous wives who escaped would be able to find refuge. However, once again, this turned out to be another bureaucracy blunder, as the following news article reported in 1928. Old Fifth East Hotel is sold. Property built by government for $300,000, finally sold for $15,000, built 44 years ago as a repudiated, as a reputed cost of $300,000. What is now known as Fifth East Hotel was placed on an auction block Saturday and knocked down to $15,000 before it found a purchaser. The Fifth East Hotel was built originally as the home for the polygamous wives of Utah, but was not long devoted to that purpose. Salt Lake Tribune, April 29, 1928, and on page 225. Built for women struggling in the chains of polygamy, it had four unsuccessful years and project, the project had to be abandoned. The home for polygamous wives soon became one of those private territorial jokes, and by 1892, it was recognized as a failure. Utah Chronicle, November 27, 1978, page 1. On June 15, 1893, the home closed its doors. Samuel W. Taylor, who was a prophet of the church, also the son of John Taylor, wrote made an interesting comment about this fiasco. The slave wife issue so captivated the public imagination that the Gentiles actually raised the money and built an imposing building in Salt Lake City as a refuge. Much to the dismay of the backers, only one woman took advantage of the refuge and the project was abandoned in confusion when it was discovered that she was not a slavery wife, but a prostitute. And quote from uh, the book, I Have Six Wives by Taylor. I think that's Samuel Taylor. Page 11. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are out there who are anti-polygamy, I'm going to tell you something about the remnant right now. The elect of God who are women will far, far outnumber men. The remnant that goes into the wilderness will far, far outnumber men. Because the elect of God, the females of the elect of God in the pre-existence, far outnumbered men. And because we all come from the intelligence which is both masculine and feminine, which is eternal... When the eternal intelligence becomes self-aware and it separates into a male and a female spirit, the spirit loses half of itself and there is an aging process which will lead to spiritual death unless the masculine and the feminine are sealed together again like they were before they became self-aware. Only, only those men and women who are sealed will attain eternal life. 
the man does not go to heaven in an exaltation without the woman, and the woman does not go to exaltation without the man. And only because there are more feminine who are elect does God allow plural celestial marriage. But only among those people who are called by revelation to live it. You don't just go living it willy-nilly. If you're in a polygamous marriage right now, you stick to it. But if you are those individuals who want to live polygamy, who have not been called to live it, you have no right to live it because you do not hold the keys of living it properly and in in entering into those unions who are coming into it in wickedness. And it is an abomination in God's sight. I would rather see my daughters marry righteous men who are already married than a wicked Gentile, uh, the wicked Gentile scum that pass off as religious men. And it is for the salvation of women and their children to be uh, brought up in righteousness that God allows righteous elect women of God to marry righteous elect men of God who are married to other women. The sealing between you and your husband does not involve those other wives, but he can be sealed to many wives and there is righteousness in it and there is a reason for it even if you do not understand it and I don't care what Brigham Young's opinion was on it I don't care what Joseph Smith's opinion on it on it was I have a problem with it culturally myself I'm married I'm married to one woman but I'm sealed to two two living women because I was sealed to my first wife who I am still sealed to And I am sealed to my second wife. Both of them are living. My first wife has no kids. That's because of her own curse that she brought upon herself. She can return anytime anytime she wants. With the permission of my first wife. And we'll get revelation on that if that ever happens. My, My wife now, and I talk about it sometimes, we... Anyway, but polygamy, plural celestial marriage, is a provision that God allows because there are many more elect women of God than there are men. It's just a fact. You go and look in the uh, the statistics of how many women there are in the church compared to men. It's millions, tens of millions. Well, not tens of millions, but it, it's a huge proportion of the church like if there were really 16 million members of the church I would say there was 10 or 11 million that were more, uh, women like that's how different it is and and we're talking and if we're talking just the active members of the church which I would say was around 5 million I would say 3.5 million of those active members were active Latter day Saints which would leave 1.5 million 
active males that are Latter-day Saints. That's why God allows plural celestial marriage and sealings. And I'm sorry if that offends your Gentile mind, but I have it from God, not from man and not from my own imagination. I wasn't asking for it when God told it to me and showed it to me. I was asking about the Big Bang Theory, which has been recently disproved with that new telescope that they have. But God showed me things, and guess what? I'm his, I'm his messenger, and even though I personally, I live in a nice home. I don't want to have two women walking around here telling me what to do. <laughs> You know? I don't want to live Cody Brown's life. But I will be obedient to the revelations of God, whether it is popular or not. Whether I stand alone in it or not. But continuing on, the, the building pictured below was a monument of stupidity of our Washington politicians and king crafters. Anyway, that, if, you, if you get this book and you read the actual paperback book, you'll see the picture. But we're reading it online and I'm reading it to you online, so it's not going to happen. Anyway, page 226 and we're 82%. Notwithstanding the great political strides made by the Edmunds-Tucker Act in legalizing the confiscation of church property and the imprisonment of its leaders, more new bills were proposed. One was the Columns-Strubble Bill, and it would disenfranchise the Mormon people and take away all of their personal property in the election of 1888 in order to rid themselves, of, if possible, of intolerable political conditions, large numbers of the Latter-day Saints withdrew from the membership in the church that they might qualify as electors by taking the test oath to the effect that they were not only uh, bigamists or polygamists, but that they were not even members of any sect of organization which teaches, advises, or encourages encourages the practice of bigamy, which is the uh, practice of having two wives or polygamy, which would be the practice having, of having three or more wives, I think. Or any other crime defined by law as a duty or privilege resulting or arising from the faith or practice of such order or organization. Correlated History of the Church, Volume 6, page 213. The federal government was administering test oaths on Mormons on religious issues. The Catholic Church had used similar oaths, but they had been confined to their own church. The political progress of America was reversing itself to kingcraft of over 600 years ago, superseding the darkness of the Dark Ages. Were the Washington politicians so blind and naive to think that their restrictions and laws would cause the devout people to give up their beliefs and practices of the eternal gospel principles? Where did these government leaders get the right to prohibit people from voting and holding public office and incarcerating them because of religious differences? 
Why was such a belief in plural marriage so terrible that they sought to destroy a whole church and take away all of its property? These politicians didn't include their tirade of any other immoral acts such as prostitution, homosexuality, adultery, etc. They even thought it was fashionable to have their mistresses. In fact, most of them were guilty of immoral sins themselves. It was strictly the polygamists who were to be destroyed, religiosity, socially, and financially. Religiously, socially, and financially. How strange that the Bible sanctioned plural marriage but recommended death for serious moral sins. A reverse in moral standards was now in force. That which was sanctioned by the Lord was forbidden, and that which was forbidden by the Lord was sanctioned by the politicians. King crafters were claiming more and more victories. In the local election, cities after city passed into their hands. In 1889, after a close and hotly contested municipal election in which the saints again levied charge, charges of fraud, Salt Lake City and Ogden, Utah, principal cities were captured by the liberals. By the way, F the left. That's the only thing you should say about liberals. F the left. Whose uh, jubilation knew no bounds. The dominant influence of Utah public life was the Mormons, of the Mormons, was at an end. And with it died a fascinating and challenging era in American history. End quote. Mormons, Americans, and Politicians by Veterali, page 683. From both outside and inside the church, people clamored for some form of compromise within the U.S. government. By the way, the uh, guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. If you have questions or comments, now is the time to call. The the phone lines are open. We're at 92%. That's 917-889-8827. Push 1 if you want to come on the air live. President Wilfred Woodruff finally decided to issue a political compromise. Quote, national, and national leaders and church leaders are said to have entered into a compact. We do not know whether such a compact was actually made, but at least the agreement and actions which it is said to have involved did take place. Religion and Economics in Mormon History by Leonard Arrington, BYU T- Studies, Volume 3, page uh, 31 and 32. Leonard Arrington, who was the uh, church history guy, uh, he was called to be the church historian. He was the last one who was actually a historian, not a lawyer. They're all lawyers now. Because the the church is their client. and They're not historians. They're they're liars. Lawyers. Liars. Lawyers. Same difference. Anyway, Leonard Arrington recalled further, as part of the deal by which this was arranged, church officials are said to have given congressional and administrative leaders to understand that they would support a proposition to prohibit forever the practice of polygamy in Utah, that the church would dissolve its people's party and divide itself into Republicans and Democrat supporters and that the church would discontinue its alleged fight against Gentile businesses and relax its own economic efforts. 
So don't worry about it. We just want you to, to relax yourself and accept Satan in your midst. Some, of, some or all of these pledges may not have been made, but certain people late, later alleged that they were made and that the granting of statehood to Utah in 1896, the restoration of church properties in 1894 and 1896, and the amnesties granted to Mormon polygamists in 1893 and 1894 were all conditioned upon the of this understanding. And that is uh, recorded in Great Basin Kingdom, page 379. Thus the Mormons gave up plural marriage, the united order, and the political system. See, in the 1890s they first gave up plural celestial marriage. Then they gave up United Orders, their financial system, they were forced to give it up. And then they, they were forced to give up their political, the political portion of the Kingdom of God, which is the Council of Fifty. The Gentiles, who are supposed to uphold the Constitution, which guarantees the rights and the practices of religion forced upon the saints that they had to give up their practice of religion. Everybody thinks about just the plural celestial thing. No, it was plural economic and government. Like the kingdom of God, the church claims to be the kingdom of God, but without those things it is not the kingdom of God, it's just the church. And it isn't even that anymore. It's not the church of God. Sorry, it's been rejected. The, the pledge was the manifesto. Tensions were alleviated, prosecution, prosecutions diminished, and better feelings between Mormons and Gentiles ensued. That's because they didn't have, they were not as much of a threat to the devil's kingdom anymore. But what a price to pay. History records the similarities between the Latter-day Saints and the Israelites of the Old Testament. They too chose to become as the rest of the world and begged Samuel for a king like all nations. The Lord told Samuel to hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they do, they have not rejected thee. They have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me, which is the, what the Latter-day Saints have done. That I should not reign over them. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. The Lord then said to make them a king, but to warn them first what would happen under the king's reign. The rest of the chapter 8 in 1 Samuel describes the servitude that would result but the people still insisted on a king. Today, Americans have insisted on having kingcraft of politicians rather than the kingdom of God, and as before, the king of kings has granted their wish. So when we come back on, we'll be in the conclusion of this book, which will be on page 229, and like I said, the phone lines are now open. The phone number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And if you go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon, during the live portion of this radio program, there will be a chat room open. So you can take advantage of that as well. All right. 
Phone lines are open. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Yeah, so now we're live. <clears throat> so uh, reading this chapter really got me irritated at all of the injustices and the unconstitutional actions of this country. And, you know, like they finally made uh, polygamy only a misdemeanor. So now you don't go to jail for a felony, but you still get misdemeanor charges, which could possibly have jail time. Um, they don't prosecute polygamy much anymore, although they will if um, if you're doing illegal things uh, like having child brides, for instance, uh, or forcing people against their will to be in uh, in relationships. Um, hold on, hey, he needs to stop. You need to go away. Okay, sorry, my three-year-old is over here making all kinds of ridiculous noises. (laughs) Anyway, so um, they'll come after you. But So I have a friend who passed away of COVID last year. His name was Tom Green. And Tom Green had several wives. And I think one of his wives... Of course, he was he was breaking Torah law because you're not allowed to marry um, a mother and a daughter under Torah law, and uh, he did that. So I don't think he was really interested in Torah law. I think he just wanted to live polygamy because of a culture of fundamentalism. But uh, he married girls that were under 18, and I'm not sure exactly. I think he was 35 and he married a 16-year-old, which is not right. Um, I remember this one, but it happens in in more than just polygamy. I mean, so I dated a girl back in 1994, and I was her last boyfriend before she got married to this guy who was 35 years old, and they were Episcopalian. She was 14. Her name was Genevieve. She got pregnant by this man, and she had her first child at 16, and she had multiple children after that. And it was interesting because, like, so <clears throat> when I was 16, <clears throat> excuse me, I actually lived in a single wed trailer with my aunt and uncle. And while I was at work, they moved out. And when I got home, uh, all of their things were gone, and there was a note on the counter that said that I was old enough to be emancipated, and it was not their responsibility. So it was interesting. <laughs> anyway, one day um, the swamp cooler wasn't working, so I climbed up on the roof, and I was trying to figure out how to fix the swamp cooler, which I'd never had to fix before. And I remember Genevieve came outside and she lived across the street in like two trailers down from where I lived. And uh, she came over and we got to know each other and we started dating. So um, let me think. No, I think her house was like almost directly across the street, but it was like the, the trailer houses were kind of staggered. Goes kind of off to one side um, across the the little trailer park road that I 
I lived on, and then the house next to theirs was this weird guy. I thought he was weird. Anyway, um, so Genevieve decided that so we were dating for a little bit, and then she decided she was going to date him, and he was 35. And she next she she lived with her parents, and they lived next door to him, and they all went to the same Episcopalian church in Kaysville, Utah. Anyway, before I know it, they're getting married, and then um, I followed her a little bit on and off throughout the years, and her life's been a wreck. Like, she was only with him for, like, four years or five years. She had a bunch of kids by him. Like, by the time she was 20, she was she had, like, three or four kids, and she was divorced and, like, high school dropout. I mean, it was a big, a big mess, and, like, I only lived there for a short time after that because I became homeless. But I still had the friends that, because, like, you know, I'm 16 years old and I'm living in this trailer park by myself. And all of these teenagers found out, hey, this kid doesn't have any parents. We can do whatever we want if we go over to his house. So my house became, or my trailer became the uh, the party hangout. And then when the landlords found out what was going on, they kicked me out and I became homeless. But so, um, and the only reason I bring that up, all my interesting life experiences, is because I think Tom Green was 35 when he married this, uh, I think she was 16, but she was underage. It doesn't matter. Underage, bad idea, right? Like, they're not, they're pre cork. what's it called, Kim, pre, the thing in the front of your cortex, prefrontal cortex. Yeah, it's not developed till you're 25. Like it's just a bad idea, right? It's and it's against the law too. Uh, anyway, but she had he had the uh, this Genevieve person had the uh, her parents gave permission for this marriage to happen, which in Utah at the time I think the laws have changed, but you could be a 14 years old with parental consent to marry. And I don't think there was an age limit going upwards, but if you were 14, anyway. So Tom Green, uh, he had married this girl, and she was married to him all his life, his whole life. I mean, from the time they got married, and he died of COVID last year, and I, it's been a couple of years since I've seen her and his other wives, but, and of course, it's been a couple of years since I've seen Tom, and he died last year, but um, he went to prison because Utah needed to make an example of somebody because during, you know, the whole world was focusing on the Olympics in Utah back in 2002, I think it was, so they made him the example, and he went to prison for cohabiting and all of that mess. And at the time, the, the attorney general, I can't remember exactly what his name is, Ed, Edward, Ed, uh, started with an S. Anyway, it's weird because, like, I lived with his nephew later on, the, the general's nephew, um, Robert Sandoval. I think his name was Sandoval. Anyway, um, so... Ogden was talking to the attorney general and 
and I think Ogden was asking, like, like, okay, you guys know that I'm a polygamist. Like, why don't you go after me? And there was something to do with, oh, you, you don't have wives. You have girlfriends. It's fine. You know, because Ogden wasn't married legally to his other wives. But uh, neither was Tom Green, but he called them wives. And Ogden called them girlfriends, even though they had had the ordinances done through the fundamentalist uh, groups, uh, through Joseph Musser. And others. Anyway, um, but it was a felony back then, and they put Tom Green in, in prison because of it, but they didn't put Ogden Crow in prison. Um, but then there was the other thing, too. Like, I think the attorney general is telling Ogden Crow if, like, Tom's going to prison because he married these underage brides. Even though. Um, even if they give parental consent, like whatever, you know, it is still a felony. And they, but Ogden had girlfriends and, uh, and they were all of age, uh, you know, around his age, not like 10, 15 years younger than him. So, so Ogden never had to deal with it, but it wasn't, it was all the way up until just a couple of years ago that it was a felony in the state of Utah to cohabitate. And, and that really drives me nuts because, like, I had roommates when I was younger, when before I was married, and I was cohabitating with them, you know, as a roommate situation. But, like, they would never go after somebody for doing that. And, in fact, if I was a Babylonian harlot, <laughs> I could have... And I know people that did this. I, I have friend groups, or I used to have friend groups, with all kinds of different people. Like, not religious people, religious people, like drug addicts, like gay people, <clears throat> like little sluts. And I'm talking about my, uh, my gay friends that were like man sluts. But, like, they could live with the people that they were, like, getting it on with, and it wasn't a big deal. And, like, people could have, like you know, multiple people and having sex orgies in these houses and nobody even bats an eye. But as soon as like it's for a religious reason, you know, call them wives, then all of a sudden, <clears throat> well, here comes law after you, you know, and it's just a double standard that's disgusting. And the fact that they made it down and, and they, they turned it into only a misdemeanor, it's like a track, traffic violation. Well, the Constitution guarantees freedom of religion and freedom to to live your religion. But these hypocrites that pass these laws and these people who who don't care about the fundamentalists, you know, and the, and the fact that they are honestly just trying to live the religion that they believe. Yeah, it's right. That the law will go after them, just like with the Edmonds uh, Tucker Act and these unconstitutional laws where they were confiscating personal and church property. It's, it's disgusting. And, like, has the United States of America ever apologized? 
for how they have treated us as a people in the restoration. The state of Missouri actually uh, did apologize for the extermination order, which Lilburn W. Boggs, you know, passed, depriving people of life, liberty, and property, which is supposed to be, you know, protected according to the founding, founding documents and the founding fathers. It was never life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It's life, liberty, and property. But the, the, the government has had us under their thumb and refuses to allow us to live peacefully as a people. Now, I don't consider myself a Brighamite fundamentalist. I did for, for a long time um, because my study led me to that. Kim, you know, they can hear you yelling, right? I do have noise canceling, but when you yell right next to me, Kim says sorry. Now she's speaking French to me. Not swear words, just French. Anyway, <laughs> um, but like the problem with that is, uh, first of all, it's unconstitutional. But second of all, when they make it illegal to live your religion, then you get people living it in secret. And they're going to live anyway. People that believe that this is part of what needs to happen for them to receive their exaltation and that's their goal, they're going to be obedient to the laws of God that they believe are the laws of God. Whether you can argue one way or the other, these people believe a certain way. And they should have the freedom to express their religion and live it and believe in it without government intervention. But because people go under under the radar and they become secretive, which is what the fundamentalists have done. I mean, they're still that way. Like, I'm friends with them because of the program that I do uh, with a lot of independent fundamentalists and some AUB, but not a whole lot of FLDS. Because the FLDS, they are so closed off and tight-knit because of the persecution that they've received. And you know what? Some of that's warranted because of the the wicked, evil things that people like um, Warren Jeffs and his brother and other people in the community have done. But these people come, become secretive. And then when there is abuse in these religious systems and abuse within these families, There's such a fear for law enforcement that they will not speak up. They will allow the abuse to continue. These women and these children who become these victims, they allow this abuse to continue because they don't want to break up their families, which monogamous relationships have problems with too, but it's like 10 times at least worse in these polygamous communities because of the fear that they're going to have their their families torn apart by CPS, Child Protective Services. Where don't even get me started on, on that disgusting mess. And we can thank Hillary Clinton for, for that. Hillary and uh, Hillary Rodden Clinton and Bill Clinton 
Bill Clinton signed the I shouldn't get into this. Bill Clinton's the one that signed that and gave the CPS teeth to do what they did. Do what they do. Which is nothing more than trial child trafficking as far as I'm concerned, where they can tear apart families and then sell these kids adopt sell. Same thing. Adopt for a large fee, you know, these kids out to who knows, whoever that whoever can pay for these kids to be adopted. Foreigners or Americans, you know, if you got money and you can adopt some kids you know, they, they get their, their paperwork done and then these kids disappear into these homes that it's child trafficking, child trafficking. But it just infuriates me that this so-called free constitutional republic that we live in that has guarantees we don't have those guarantees anymore. The saints didn't have those guarantees back then, even though they believed in them, even though Joseph Smith, as a kid, knew people who fought in the Revolutionary War. That's how, that's how quick they lost they began losing their freedom. And you've got these trial lawyers who do try to uphold uh, constitutional rights to their, to their victims, uh, to the victims of this tyrannical government. And thank goodness for, for trial lawyers, whether you agree with the people they're defending or not, at least they're trying to keep these people like their fourth amendment, fifth amendment rights you know, and, and other rights. They're trying to keep these rights, you know, and there's been so many um, court cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court where the tyrannical government wants to take away these rights. And thank goodness there have been people in the Supreme Court that are there to protect the Constitution. But we're losing it. We've lost portions of it because the devil is going to keep on nicking away at the rock of the Constitution until it has no power. And they have done that, and they are continuing to do that, and it just makes me sick. And while I'm on my tirade, ranting, whatever, one of the other things that really drives me nuts is we as a people were told by Governor Ford that we would have no protection in Nauvoo and basically to leave the, uh, leave the area. And so you have this mass exodus that goes out into Mexico, into the Rocky Mountains. It was not even a territory of the United States at the time to escape the tyranny of the United States of America. And as soon as they're getting ready to leave, the government basically kidnaps what we call the Mormon Battalion and forces them under threat of annihilation. If they don't do what they're, uh, they say to do, then they're going to kill everybody. That's our disgusting government that did that. 
All you patriots out there that love the government so much, they are your enemy. This is what they have done to us as a people. And now you get the people out there, and the territory becomes the territory, and the state becomes the state. And now you've got all of these brainwashed fools who are supposed to be for the kingdom of God, as John Taylor said, the kingdom of God or nothing. And they celebrate Fourth of July, and you know what? For the tenets that this nation was was raised up in, I agree. Celebrating the Fourth of July just for the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and all of that. But then we have these. 24th of July. So the 24th of July, for people who are not LDS, the 24th of July, 1846, or 45 or 46, I can't remember. Maybe it was 47. They they came into the Salt Lake Valley. That's the day that they came into the valley, and Brigham Young said, this is the place, and he claimed to have seen it in a vision, even though he had talked to these, these mountaineers, uh, these mountain men that told them about this Salt Lake Valley before they even got here. In fact, Smith knew about it because they were talking about coming out here anyway just to escape the tyranny of the United States and the wickedness that was happening and the persecutions and the murderings and the robbings and the plunderings and all the stuff. Anyway, they get out here, and we have this holiday in the state of Utah, and we call it Pioneer Day, the 24th of July, the anniversary of the time when the saints escaped the United States, and we came into the the Salt Lake Valley and in the, the heart of the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West. But it wasn't, I mean, we had a, a period of really, like, good times here. But then eventually you have Johnston's army, ordered by the President of the United States on false charges, never investigated, to come and annihilate the saints. And when that didn't work, they send in the marshals and the lawyers. And now you have people that turn the, four, the 24th of July into another 4th, another 4th of July, another Independence Day. Like, and you go watch the fireworks and you listen to all this patriotic music. The reason why we're here in these mountains is because of the tyranny of the United States of America. And we escaped that disgusting country to have a chance at true freedom with our own constitution, which mirrored that of the original founding fathers of the United States of America. We escaped their tyranny, and then they came in, and they made the whole area into a territory, and then, you know, they wouldn't even give us statehood until we gave up polygamy, United Orders, and the Council of Fifty, and submitted ourselves to their plunderings and their robberies and even their murderers, and that didn't stop. If you know anything about the history of the fundamental, that didn't stop. Have you ever heard of the Short Creek Raids? The persecution has continued, and it's lessened in time, but that 
even into the 1900s. But you got these brainwashed masses that turn the 24th of July, which is supposed to be a day of celebration for a in the United States and for having our own place, the nation of Deseret, before the territory of the United States. And now you have these ignorant people, and I'm sorry if I'm calling you an ignorant person because you turned the 4th of July, or the 24th of July pioneer day into a second holiday for independence. Really? You still don't have your independence from the tyranny. And just as Daniel chapter 7 talks about that the ancient, that the, the, the little horn, the little horn that Daniel talked about in his vision that he was interpreting, whatever, that's the United States of America. And the saints of the most the latter days are the saints of the restoration branches. And the little horn would persecute the saints until the ancient of days came. And you know what? That still hasn't happened yet. Daniel's prophecy was that this, that the little horn would, would um, I can't remember exactly what the word is for it, but would basically persecute the saints until the ancient of days comes. And you get along with your mass, your slave masters, but you are still a slave. You are a tax debt slave in their system. And so am I. And you're not allowed to live your religion, even though you live in a land that supposedly guarantees constitutional, or the constitutional rights of, of freedom of religion and the expression thereof to live your religion without fear of government tyranny, but we still have to deal with that. This nation is wicked beyond wicked. Now, I'm not telling anybody to go out and do anything about it. You pray, prep, pray, and stay stay out of the way. As uh, one of my acquaintances, Royston Potter, talks about prep, Pray and stay out of the way. Because the, the wicked are going to destroy the wicked. The wicked government wants you dead. Because, you know, global warming and too many people, every person has services that are tied to them in order to support them. And the more people there are, the more trucks have to run, the more cars have to run, the more factories have to run, the more mining has to happen, the more global warming happens, and they want you dead. The Georgia Guidestones, they have to tell you, they live by these strange laws where they have to tell you what's happening, but they don't have to tell you, like they'll tell you, but you think it's just a TV show, or they'll tell you, but they won't tell you why they're telling you, and yet you'll just dismiss and then later on, you'll be like, oh, my gosh, they were, trying. They, were, they were doing the thing where they tell us, but they didn't want to really tell us. Georgia Guidestones is the Ten Commandments of the Satanic World Order. I don't like calling them Luciferians because Luciferian, Lucifer was the bearer of light and truth, and Jesus Christ was a Lucifer. 
before the rebellion, Lucifer was a bearer of light and truth. It's uh, it's the Latin. It means the Latin. It means the same thing. And and in the Latin scriptures, Jesus Christ is called a Lucifer. Like there's so much ignorance about that one word too. Lucifer became a Satan. He fell and had his his title stripped from him. But anyway, but they're satanic. And they want to get the world population down to, I think it was 600, let me think. I think it's 600 million, 650 million or maybe. It's like, it ain't 7 billion. It ain't even 1 billion. Well, what happens to all those excess people? Well, they have to die. And, and they can't do what they did with Hitler and the Jews, you know, hard kill extermination. No, they use kill extermination. They want to make you sterile so you cannot breed. They want to turn everyone gay so they will not have children. And they want to uh, put things in your body which will make you sterile and kill you. And their justification for that is depopulation for the sake of climate change because we want to save this planet. It's a lie. This whole world is full. It's full. It's thick as as jello. (laughs) Thick as clam chowder. It's full of gross darkness, wickedness, and evil, and it is saturated. And you live in it, and you probably don't even see it, but it is there, and it's all around you. And these politicians who speak smooth things to your ears, whether they're on the right or the left, they're part of the system of, of wickedness. And the wicked is going, the wicked will destroy the wicked. They're going to destroy each other. And Isaiah saw that there would be a remnant or residue of the people that would come through it. But it would be a small group of people. It's not going to be 16 million members of the LDS church. It's not even going to be 1 million members of the LDS church. It is a small group of people that when the time comes, when it gets too dangerous to remain, even in the countryside where I live, God will raise up the Davidic servant, and he will lead them in the highways of the top of the mountains and into the desert places, into the secret places. And Zion will be born in the wilderness. And as the patriots of this country are almost to the point of annihilation, those those individuals who are part of the remnant will have had Zion redeemed among them and they will have built the tabernacle for the Father to come restore the fullness of the priesthood to these people, which fullness of the priesthood gives you the ability to control the elements. God's given me a taste of what of that myself. I have been given the fullness of the priesthood and I've commanded the elements. But just a taste. 
my wife is being she's like I want you to get off the phone because I really want to see you tonight get thee behind me Satan wife <laughs> oh she she does have to go to bed I'm not going tonight so, or going to work tonight but uh, anyway so there will come a time when we come down out of our hiding place with the fullness of the priesthood and we'll be able to to con- command the elements the same way that Enoch did, the same way that Moses did, the same way that um, Elisha did. They all had the fullness of the priesthood. Jesus had the fullness of the priesthood. But that's not going to happen to the majority of Latter-day Saints. Because of the wickedness that is that has happened in high places, the cursings of God will come first among you, among they who say that they know me but do not. It'll be a remnant of people who who are waking up if Satan doesn't stop you, because Satan's sending all these Judas goats out right now to get you to uh, get you distracted to keep you from the goal of being part of the remnant. There's a lot of people out there who think they're part of the remnant. You're being distracted by Judas goats. They may tell you many true things, even things of deep doctrine, but in key points, they are leading you astray and you are being led to the slaughter. So the remnant is going to be a very, very small group of people, but they will have the power of God behind them. And when wicked have almost annihilated the wicked, the remnant will finish the job. The righteous will finish the annihilation of the wicked. And we'll go back to the center place and there will be a cleansing before that happens. And this nation will be cleansed because this is, this is the promised land. This is Israel, North America. In Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is giving his blessing to Joseph, he says that their posterity would be led away to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. And Jacob gave his name to Ephraim, who was the son of Joseph. The posterity of Joseph is at Ephraim and Manasseh, but, but Ephraim has the birthright name of Jacob or of Israel. That place over in the Middle East that they call Israel, that's Judea. Judea. They didn't name it right. It was a purpose. Israel was the northern kingdoms. It was the tribe of Ephraim that was called Israel. And the southern tribe was called Judea. But the remnants or the, the, uh, the posterity, the descendants, of Joseph, eventually they would make their way after the time of Joseph and Jacob 
to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. This is this is Israel. This continent, this American continent, is the promised land. And it will be the seat of government for the political government of God upon the face of the earth in the heartland of this American continent. And the theological capital for the world in the millennium will be in Jerusalem. The political portion of the kingdom of God will be on the American continent. And it will be part of Zion's redemption when the church of the firstborn comes down to the earth and the government will be here. And so... When we come back on Friday, we are going to finish this book. Now, the name of the book is called The Four Crafts. I was talking to Kevin Crow and Beverly Crow the other day, separately. <laughs> I like talking to them both. <laughs> Just on the phone, because I'll, I'll, I'll call Beverly for some reason. I'll call Kevin for some reason. And every once in a while, I'll talk to them together, and I'll go visit them. But um, I, I think I was telling Beverly, this, this book should have been called The Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. Dr. Craft, Lawyer Craft, Priest Craft, and King Craft. But we will be finishing this book on Friday. And then next week, I don't know what book we're going to get into. I have to go through all of the books. So I've been doing these podcasts and these radio shows since January of 2014. But my first program, because of all the mess with with certain things, like I was getting death threats, and I had to completely just walk away from that program. And and I that was called the Kingdom of God or Nothing, and I revamped and, and that now I'm doing, you know, fundamentally Mormon part of the Zion's Redemption Radio Network, you know, and I think I started this one in 2018, so I did three and a half years on the Kingdom of God or Nothing, which you can't even get the recordings for that anymore because they've all. You can see that they're there. If you go to iTunes, it looks like they're there. But if you try to download them and listen to them, no audio. They won't upload. I didn't do that. I'm not the one that did that, but it was done. But I think I started Fundamentally Mormon April 6th of uh, 2018. And we're in our sixth... We're over 600 episodes so far. So I have to go back and I have to look, okay, which books have I read and which ones haven't I read and do I want to read? Like there's certain books that I love to read that I'll read once a year, like uh, The Mysteries of Creation or 95 Thesis. But I have to go back and I have to look, okay, which books have we done and which books should we do? Which ones do I want to do? Like one of my favorite ones was uh, as it was translated correctly, and it's been four years since I've done that book. Maybe I'll go back to that one. It's a dang good book, and it, it teaches a lot of really cool things about uh, scripture, 
where we get our scripture from, the translations, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of that. It's freaking, freaking great. <laughs> Made my Mormon swear words. But I don't know which one we're going to do anyway. But you know what? We're going to figure it out. But the next program that we do on Friday is going to be the conclusion of the four crafts of the devil's kingdom. Or the four crafts, whatever. And then we'll try to figure out what we're going to do for next week. Now, remember, if you're listening this far, thus far, whatever, we do go live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 p.m. until 8, and we can go from uh, 8 to 9 in overdrive, which is what we're in now. So it can be up to three hours long, but uh, the phone lines are always open, even during the recorded portion of the program. I'm monitoring the studio. So any questions or comments off air, if you call in during the time I'm You know, the recording is going on. I will pull you off into the screening room, and you can ask me your questions or comments. And if you want to go live when the recorded portion of the program is over, I always try. And if something's going on, I always have my uh, open lines. So just remember that if you're listening to this podcast, we do go live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 p.m., to 8 p.m., and then if we need to, we can go into overdrive till 9 p.m. So, all right, well, that's the end of the program, and my wife wants to spend some time with me because she is jealous of everybody here because I spend so much time doing the ministry. <clears throat> and Amberly, my seven-year-old, is also jealous of you guys because I spend too much time doing all this stuff. Like, you have no idea. It, I think it drives all of them nuts. <laughs> Anyway, all right, well, thank you for listening. I'm going to end the program now. Take care, everyone. God bless. And goodbye. Stop. I'm not muted yet. Hold on, here we go.